Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the current events going on around the time of Season 1, Episode 6, in May 1990. So we'll talk about what was on TV that night, what was on the cover of Time Magazine, what was in the news, and so forth. This episode aired at 9 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, May 10th, 1990. And it held firm at the previous episode's numbers, with just a slight drop from 17.4 to 17.3 million viewers. The show supposedly earned an 11.5 rating, down from 11.9, which I find hard to reconcile with the smaller slide in total viewership, given that ratings are based on the number of Americans who own TV sets. And I'd imagine that its share, which I unfortunately can't dig up at my usual resource, was larger than usual because not a lot of people were watching network TV this night. On NBC Cheers, which uh, usually doubled Twin Peaks numbers, registered a paltry 17.6 rating with a repeat. Its season ended the week before. The conclusion of Wings two-parter returned to Nantucket, in which one of the lead brother's ex-wives agrees to, well, return to Nantucket with him, only to, once again, suggest an affair to his brother, limped by with a 14.6 rating, less than half of its pilot's blockbuster showing. If Twin Peaks didn't gain any raw viewers from this potential windfall, neither did Falcon Crest on CBS. The episode Danny's Song, in which a paternity crisis throws an upcoming wedding into turmoil, saw a slight bump in ratings, but still came in last in Twin Peaks' time slot. ABC stuck with Father Dowling Mysteries as a soft lead-in, regurgitating reruns now that the season had ended. Even that repeat got higher ratings than the show that followed Twin Peaks, Primetime Live at 10 p.m., which ran an interview with Holocaust denier Fred Luchter. Luchter, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, but honestly, who cares, had spent many years designing more humane forms of capital punishment, but in the late 80s, he was employed by Ernst Zundel, who was being tried in Canada for incitement and threatening national security. Zundel hired him to, quote, prove that the gas chambers in Auschwitz could not have operated as they actually did, not having displayed much earlier interest in anti-Semitism or right-wing extremism before this, Luchter was perhaps a proto-intellectual dark web type, offering apologia for Nazism in the form of pseudoscientific, just-asking-questions quasi-objectivity. Around the time this program aired, Luchter, given his connection to many states through his capital punishment work, was being heavily protested, and eventually his contracts were ended. In the late 90s, he was the subject of Errol Morris's documentary Mr. Death, which uses his Holocaust denial as a surprise twist about halfway through. On a lighter note, in the movie theaters at the time, Pretty Woman hung on to number one at the box office in its seventh week. For a while, it had been displaced by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but now it was back without much competition. The official summer season was still a few months away, and it could squeak by with $6.8 million. There wasn't a lot to go on when I looked up news for this day, although digging into the obituaries yielded some very interesting material. Speaking of obituaries, the event of interest on this site was Howard Stern's mock funeral for John DeBella, a rival radio host from Philadelphia whom Stern had just passed in ratings. For years, Stern had ridiculed the popular Philadelphian and openly encouraged a harassment campaign against him, even inviting the host's estranged wife on the show and stroking her back as she sat on his lap. Later, for presumably unrelated reasons, she killed herself. The host's career was decimated, but years later Stern called him to apologize profusely after DeBella appeared on a special honoring Stern. As far as real deaths go, the most notable of the day was Walker Percy at 73. He was the author of philosophical books set in New Orleans and best friend from early youth of Shelby Foote, the Southern Civil War historian who would become a household name later in 1990 when Ken Burns' Civil War series aired on PBS. 
Connections to other writers include John Kennedy Toole, whom he never met, but whose book The Confederacy of Dunces, he was instrumental in getting posthumously published. And the film critic Stanley Kaufman, who edited and heavily collaborated on, perhaps, Percy's most famous book, The Movie Goer. When I ran a Reading the Movies series on Lost in the Movies 10 years ago, exactly 10 years ago, in fact, the moviegoer proved a popular recommendation among film bloggers. Influenced by Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, Walker Percy converted to Catholicism as a young man, and he later wrote an anti-segregation essay for Commonweal Magazine, a publication that will eventually be cited in my Twin Peaks coverage for one of the most memorable pieces written about the show. Also passing away this day from cancer in her late 50s was Susan Oliver, a film and mostly TV actress from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, who also had a fascinating career in aviation. She even combined her two interests in the TV movie Amelia Earhart in 1976, albeit not as the title character, and was nominated for an Emmy as Supporting Actress. Long before her aviation career began, she was an ordinary passenger on a Pan Am flight in 1959, and the exact same day that Buddy Holly was killed in an infamous crash, she dropped from 35,000 to 6,000 feet and swore off flying for years. In fact, she had to undergo hypnosis to overcome this fear, and then, remarkably, she began training to become a pilot herself, during which time she was a passenger in an actual crash. Again, she became the fourth solo female pilot to fly a single-engine aircraft across the Atlantic, the second to do so from New York City, and almost made it to Moscow, although the USSR would not let her into its airspace. She earned a type rating on a Learjet and co-piloted to Victory, a 2,760-mile transcontinental race called the Powder Puff Derby, earning the status of Pilot of the Year, and later she focused more on flying gliders. For many today, she is known as the Green Girl, clad in green makeup for the abandoned pilot of Star Trek, a still of which made it into the end credits of the TV series and achieved an indirect iconic status among Trekkies. In fact, a documentary about her life and varied career was produced in 2014, and it was called The Green Girl. Coincidentally, her only cinematic top billing was in The Green-Eyed Blonde, written by Dalton Trumbo under a pseudonym in the 50s. She also had a continuing role as Anne Howard on ABC's Peyton Place, a key forerunner of Twin Peaks, and on a day when one of the most notable female directors in TV history stepped into Twin Peaks, it's worth noting one other aspect of Susan Oliver's legacy. Although she only directed a couple TV episodes in her career, Oliver was part of the AFI's founding class of the Directing Workshop for Women, which Gladder would join ten years later, and for which she would make Tales of Meeting and Parting. Both Oliver's and Gladder's AFI films feature Japanese casts. Time Magazine's cover story this week was titled Dirty Words, America's Foul-Mouth Pop Culture, an interesting choice as Howard Stern played one of his cruelest stunts on a competitor. The image depicts a grotesque detached mouth, very Lynchian, spewing torrents of fire carrying the body of a scantily clad woman, a skull and crossbones, a dagger, a bomb, various expletive symbols, and for some reason a microphone and a guitar. That's it for this episode. Make sure you check out the illustrated companions for some uh, visual uh, accompaniments for uh, the episode. And uh, this uh, podcast tomorrow will pick up with the In the Weeds uh, discussion of characters, locations, coffee, pie, and donuts, just sort of the trivial details of this particular episode. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. See you tomorrow. Is your food between John DeBello from Philadelphia real or is it just put on? 
Well, this guy is a zoo. You know, Joan, in radio, I don't know how much radio you listen to. There's a thing called a morning zoo. Right. I'm a 36-year-old man already. I think a morning zoo doesn't sound like my cup of tea. You know right. what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not looking for this kind of thing. So, yeah, I hate my uh, competition. I hate him in particular. I don't like him. And I'm glad I'm number one in Philadelphia now. It means that good radio has come to Philadelphia. People have accepted it. Well, I'm very I happy. I can't wait for you to be on television, because that will make television even more fun than it oh, is thanks, now. Sean. Thank you so right. much. And we'll be right back. Coming up next, birth mothers and babies betrayed by adoptions they trusted.